Hi, I'm Gabby. I'm a senior library assistant and my favorite type of holiday or winter beverage is apple cider, at best if it is spiked. I'm Amanda. I'm a children's librarian and my favorite winter beverage is mulled wine. My name's Brittany and I'm a library services supervisor and my favorite uh, winter holiday beverage is hot chocolate. And this is the Ask Us Desk. I'm dancing Yay! even though you guys can't see it. <laughs> Invisible dance break. <laughs> All right. Well, last episode we discussed NaNoWriMo because it was National Novel Writing Month, but it is also National Native American Heritage Month. So I thought it would be good to highlight three really awesome Native American librarians who have done wonders for the field. So one person that I wanted to bring up was Dr. Lucy Patterson. Um, and I watched most of her hour and a half long video interview on the uh, Library of Congress website. They had this really great interview with her. So Lucy Patterson is a Comanche librarian and she's a librarian and educator and founder of the American Indian Library Association. So she's done a lot of work with tribal libraries. And one of the things that I really loved in the interview was her talking about the idea of the native community finding, going to them and finding what they want and what they need for their libraries and finding out even who they want from their community to run the library, which was a really powerful thing I thought because you know, the typical sort of, you know, colonizer settler mindset is we will bring a librarian to your community to like create a library. But I think it's more powerful if you can give a member of that community the tools to become a librarian, because as she said in her interview, it's easier to teach a native community member how to run a library than it is to teach a non-native librarian how to be a part of that community. So I thought that was yeah. a really beautiful, powerful thing. And yeah. uh, you can take a lot away from that statement and you know, think about what that means for other communities. I would just really appreciated that. And she, she's been doing this work for a really long time. And I just appreciate everything she's done for libraries. So you did a little bit of research, Gabby, on tribal libraries. What were you um, looking into specifically? For me, it was definitely a lesson in you don't know what you don't know. And this is definitely me speaking out of my privilege. Like it never occurred to me that libraries on reservations would be different than libraries anywhere else. Um, and it's that's just because I hadn't ever really given it a lot of thought. And that's definitely on me. So it was very illuminative. Illuminative? Is that a word? Uh, illuminating. <laughs> Uh, experience to, to do some looking into it. And yeah, uh, one of the documents that I was reading talked about how a, it's very difficult to get good numbers on how many Native Americans actually complete like a master's program for librarianship. There's just not really great documentation there. And what documentation there is, it's a very small percentage. No, I think that that's um, interesting because in her interview another thing that she was talking about was does it make sense 100 percent of the time to require a master's degree in library science especially for native communities and probably i would say i would hazard in general in my opinion 100 percent necessary to do the work that i do yeah. i think it would have been much more valuable to have an undergraduate degree in the field instead or just having the experience in the library is makes a huge world of difference um well and i wonder too that's an excellent point and i wonder too how relevant a traditional master's degree would be for a native american librarian who intends to go into the library field on reservations and in tribal libraries tribal libraries are so different and meet so many different needs of their communities, of their reservations, or whatever community they are near and serve. They're often museums and archives, as well as more traditional, you know, the checkout and computer side of what public libraries you think of 
what they do, um, but also as a community meeting places and resources. So how, how relevant <laughs> would a traditional degree be and how many pathways are there for Native Americans to be able to do that to serve their communities? Yeah, and I think it's also important that like each Native community is going to be different. Right. Um, the other person that I uh, looked into who is awesome and that I follow on Twitter is <laughs> Dr. Debbie Reese, um, who's tribally enrolled, uh, Nambe Pueblo. She's the founder of the American Indians in Children's Literature blog, which is an amazing blog. And on that blog, she says, um, Native American or American Indian, there is no agreement among Native peoples. Both are used. It is best to be specific. Instead of saying Debbie Reese, a Native American, say Debbie Reese, a Nambe Pueblo Indian mm. woman. So I think that's a really good distinction to make as well, to make sure that like each community is treated as its own individual tribe and that they're not a monolith. That's a, a big thing that they advocate for, uh, that Debbie Reese advocates for. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, in speaking of Debbie Reese, I remember, I don't know if y'all remember this, but there was the, um, she was one of the people who was pushing for the uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder oh, yeah. Award to be, the name oh. to be changed. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I listened to a podcast about that uh about her her talking about that and uh one thing that i really love that she said is that she enjoys pushing people on po points or things that they hold dear so you know some people have that book you know little house on the prairie is like this iconic thing from their childhood that shouldn't be touched and mm -hmm. um you know there are things that she realized that she read when she was a kid like i think the book called five chinese brothers and realizing as she got older, you know, hey, this book is actually like a racist depiction of the Chinese community. And maybe like, I don't have to hold it in my heart as this wonderful thing and get defensive when people point that out. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I enjoyed listening uh, to her talk about that as well. Yeah, I, I'm for us changing the award <laughs> the name. I think it did get changed. This was a while ago, or or did, did it? it? Let me let see. Me, Hold let on. Let me Google this. <laughs> I was gonna say I remember when that came up, but I don't ever remember hearing the resolution. On ALA website, it still has the Laura Ingalls Wilder Award. It has the previous mm -hmm. year's winners from 2018. I think is when it was changed. Okay. To the Children's Literature Legacy Award. Yeah. Yep. So it was that so they did succeed in getting it changed. Good job. Yeah, which is awesome. Yeah. I think I also vaguely remember someone sarcastically saying, like, oh, so now we're gonna ban Little House on the Prairie books from the library. Ugh. I was like, <laughs> no, that's I mean, I feel like <laughs> we've covered this multiple times with Harry Potter and with yeah. other things. It's like we're not in the the business of banning books. Yeah. But we are in the business of providing context. I think in the business of encouraging especially media to be consumed with a critical eye and to yeah. encourage critical thinking. <laughs> yeah. And I think to you to be a good reader, you should be reading critically. Um and be th thinking outside of your box. If you're just reading and you're not um, considering other worldviews, then I don't know. You're kind of doing it wrong. Well, the third awesome librarian I wanted to bring up was Dr. Lorene Roy, who um, is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin iSchool. I listened to a podcast that she recorded on circulating ideas. Um, Steve, who is a Twitter librarian that I'm vaguely familiar with, <laughs> uh, did a <laughs> Shout out Steve, friend of the podcast. No, <laughs> we, we can just say that, right? Like, it's like, oh, yeah. I've, you've liked one of my tweets. You're a friend of the podcast now. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, oh. So uh, 
She's done some great stuff. She was the first Native American president of the American Library Association. She is Anishabe enrolled in the White Earth Reservation, a member of the Minnesota Chippewa tribe. Um, and like I said, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, she has, she's a big advocate of self-care, which that was really um, interesting listening to her talk about that and self-care in librarianship specifically, like how we need to be um, making sure we don't run ourselves ragged and let ourselves oh be my abused by patrons. Oh my God, I need this. Yeah, so <laughs> I would recommend looking up the stuff that she's written and worked on. And um, she's also the founder and director of If I Can Read, I Can Do Anything, a national reading club for American Indian students. So she's just awesome and done lots of really great things for the library community and for the Native American community. Um, and so if you haven't heard of any of these three amazing, amazing women, you should look them up, uh, read some of their works, listen to them talk. Um, they've done a lot of great stuff for the profession. I think it's good for us to be aware of these people who are in um, librarianship and that are making these strides and they're speaking up for um, different people of color. Because I mean, we're three white women <laughs> who are talking about this, but I think it's good that, you know, like how Gabby said, you know, she didn't realize like tribal libraries, how different they were. And like, I learned from, uh, from you guys that would ask, you know, the community, Hey, what are you looking for? What are, what kind of, who do you want to be as a librarian? Which I think is amazing. I feel like we should do that across the board with all communities. Um, I think when people, the community goes into a library, they should see, uh, people that look mm -hmm. like them on the staff. Oh yeah. And I also wanted to encourage listeners. If you are, if you work at a public library or at a academic university library or any library really, I guess, um, do some research and figure out whose land you're on. In Seattle, uh, we are on the land of the Coast Salish people, specifically the Duwamish tribe. Our library has worked with them in the past to do various projects, and they are not federally recognized and continue to struggle to get federal recognition. So if you want to learn more about the Duwamish tribe, you can go to duwamishtribe.org to find out about them and support their struggle but uh, the Duwamish tribe encourages land acknowledgements. So we try to do them before library programs just to acknowledge that we are on their land. Um, I know there's a number that you can text and you can put in the name of the city. I don't, yeah, I think you have to give the city and state and I can give that number out if you guys would like. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, uh, it's 907-312-5084. And you just text um, where you're at, and it will send you um, what uh, tribes were, were here on the land. So for like in Dallas, Texas, it says, in Dallas, Texas, you are uh, Kickapoo, Tawakani, and Wichita land. And then it says more info, and you can go and look and see um, the land acknowledgement, kind of like how Amanda was talking about as well land acknowledgement dash code for anchorage and they are a canadian not um nonprofit group who is you know really for like land acknowledgement um and giving you the information uh, you know if you're looking for that thank you for sharing that that's awesome yeah so what are you guys currently reading right now so i currently finished reading there, There by Tommy Orange. This was actually the Seattle Reads book. So we have this sort of one city, one book type program called Seattle Reads. Um, and I think the original name of the program was something like Seattle gets together and all reads the same book or something like that. <laughs> that is so long. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it has been shortened to Seattle Reads. Um, so There, There is the debut novel by the author Tommy Orange who is Cheyenne and Arapaho. Um, so this was published in 2018 and it um, sort of opens with an essay by Tommy Orange, uh, but mostly it's an ensemble cast. Uh, so there are a bunch of different points of views and a bunch of different characters. And at first it's not totally clear and they're all um, Native Americans living in Oakland, California. It was really interesting because at first the storylines seem kind of detached from each other and not super related except maybe thematically but then characters start to overlap 
and it starts to sort of build towards this event that happens. And it's just a very well pieced together book. I appreciate the masterful storytelling, like kind of going back and forth, almost in timelines and in perspectives. So it's called There, There by Tommy Orange. I, I'm currently reading uh, Kelly Jo Ford's debut novel, Crooked Hallelujah. And she is a Cherokee woman. Uh, and the novel follows uh, four generations of Cherokee women um, who move from Oklahoma into Texas and just explores their relationships and the ties that bind them together and them to the land and to their heritage. Um, and I've just started it, but so far it is, it's very, very beautiful prose and uh, I am excited to continue reading it. Uh, I am currently reading Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Rowanhorse. Um, I literally just started it, so I'm super early in it. Um, and it is a urban, paranormal, uh, fantasy uh, book. It's a first in the sixth world series. And it's about Maggie Hosky. She is um, Monster Hunter, which the DNA are Navajo. Um, and she has the supernatural powers, so she's a gifted killer, um, and there's a missing girl in this small town on a reservation, and so she's trying to help find the girl, kicking ass with monsters, post-apocalyptic, all these things I love, and um, Rebecca Rowanhorse, she is, I believe, um, also, uh, she is not Navajo. I believe her husband is Navajo. She is okay, Owenge, Pueblo, and African American. Um, but yeah, and so if you like supernatural, paranormal books, I, I would recommend it. I would point out that Debbie Reese uh, on her website, American Indian Children's Literature blog, says not recommended to that really? series. Yes, wow. the, the author is not of the culture of right. the world that is being built. Gotcha. So I will just point that out. That, I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, that doesn't, you know, like I, I'm going to stay in my lane. <laughs> but I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> no, that is good. That's good to share. Um, I remember years ago hearing about this book and it was from a friend who um, she is, Cherokee and she was the one that first introduced me to this book and um she said it was saying something about like hey heads up there is some people that don't like it on in the native community because of that mm -hmm. and um so yeah that's a good 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 the thank you for sharing we are the ask us desk we answer your questions about libraries librarians library services and anything else. You can reach us at askuspod at gmail.com or at askuspod on Twitter and Instagram. And we would love uh, listeners for you to ask us your questions. Um, we are still just a baby podcast. So today we will be answering librarian questions found on Twitter. Yeah, so I found couple of questions out there mostly because of this first one because it's like a constant struggle at least it was when we were open I don't think I have even looked in a drawer of an information desk since <laughs> we have closed but um so stacked librarian at s-t-c-k-e-d librarian um, asked library twitter is your info desk tidy oh and so I feel like every time I would go on to the information desk, I was always like obsessively organizing it because somehow in between the last time I had worked the information desk and the current time, stuff had just migrated and like gotten messy and like 12 pins over here. I don't know. <laughs> Why? <laughs> so this is kind of a mixed answer for me personally. Uh, because I've worked at the, all of our different branches and each one's different. So um, one is very, very organized. Everything has its place. Everyone knows where things go and they put it back. And then the other two are more um, free willing. <laughs> <laughs> flexible. Yeah, we flexible. Are flexible. That's a good word for that. 
yeah um it's never though like in a like oh my god i can't find anything it's just a again i'm not i don't work at one location all the time so i'm i it's, it's easy for me to be like okay where is something uh last time i remember i think it was over here nope it's not here and then i have to ask someone yeah we've been living in a constant state of wtf did this get moved to right now um because we are constantly the well the handful of things that we are still moving around we are still moving around um with great frequency but i will say yeah covid has sort of instituted the probably the tidiest and cleanliest <laughs> we we've been um so yes currently right now it is very tidy uh should we ever go back to not wiping everything down every hour and a half, it may return to its more flexible state. <laughs> I have a constant struggle with trying to find where things are because I'm also not at my home library. So several of the branches where I've been redeployed to have really good labels on everything, but for some reason, objects have been moved from those locations. <laughs> so so I spent like 30 minutes trying to find like the copier key and then because I was like it's not in the store where would it be it's not in the drawer labor copier key <laughs> and then someone was just like oh this is like also dumb Amanda like you should just ask somebody you shouldn't spend this much time looking for an object but it was so <laughs> I finally asked someone <laughs> and they were like oh we put it right by the copier because you know we can just leave it out there's no no public in the building so we can just leave it out on top of the copier and I was like don't <laughs> you would think an email or something would be sent out but no no what no i mean if we if i got an email every time somebody did something like that it would be a i never mean that's true. <laughs> it would be a never-ending but like a copier like i feel like that's like a thing that people should know if don't if you don't send an email out at least be like hey fyi everyone this has been moved to here like in person I can say, yeah, don't tell me you've shifted the blue pins to the left and yeah, the black yeah. pins to the right. <laughs> Do tell me if you've moved the freaking keys. <laughs> yeah. I also have just like Swiss cheese memory. So people tell me things and then I immediately forget. Uh, so our next question is from Amanda on Twitter, not me, <laughs> um, <laughs> at Amanda Farrell on Twitter at, says, Today seems full of posts about libraries going back to curbside ser service. Uh, what is your town doing? Because that, you know, pretty recently at the time of the recording of this podcast, many states have gone into second phases of lockdown because of the COVID spikes huh. being unprecedentedly high. So um, for our library, we never got past the curbside service phase. So we are unaffected by the governor of Washington's new restrictions because we never started doing anything besides that um how about y'all uh-oh uh-oh what state do we live in <laughs> texas yeah um our governor doesn't care about people he only cares about money let's be real um i do know that the dallas county and tarrant county judges have asked um governor abbott like please if you are not going to do a statewide thing let us have power over um the counties because our numbers are skyrocketing um texas was the first state to reach over a million cases um but yeah no there's been no change we're still open for you know limited services but we are open and we also do the drive through and curbside services um i honestly don't know what it will take for there to be a change. I heard that uh, El Paso County, um, they were having really bad numbers as well. And the county judge tried to make some changes of kind of just circumventing around uh, the governor's orders. And uh, that uh, apparently that was a big no-no and he got in trouble. So yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, so several days ago, Dallas hit the highest number of cases in one day with no backlog. I think just the highest number period, like even counting the day, the high days we had in June, 
and I kind of thought maybe that would slide something into effect then, but because um, Dallas is near to where we are, and that uh, no, that is not the case. And let me tell you, uh, people are still turning out in small droves, at least. We had, I think, the highest number of people in our branch today that we've had since we mm. reopened. Really? It was it was quite the zoo today, let me tell y'all. <laughs> That's crazy. I'm wondering if it's because the holidays are coming up and people are, um, which is stupid. I'm like, people, don't go see your extended families over Thanksgiving. Don't make this be your grandma's last Thanksgiving with you. Just, yeah. just, just don't. At least our state is issuing those things. But as people have pointed out, it's great in all that this order has been issued, but it would also be great if there was some sort of uh, economic package yes. for yes. COVID relief. Yes. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I feel bad for people who work at the bars and restaurants because I don't attend, I don't go to restaurants or bars. I'm like, that's, I feel Mm-mm. like that's a terrible idea. Don't do that. But then I feel bad because they are open and the staff makes money off of tips. Mm-hmm. So there's no real winning for them. Like they're at now at a high risk job that things could be spread really easily. Um, but then if people don't go, how are they making a living? Because our government isn't helping them. Yeah. And so I don't, basically the government needs to step in. Yeah. So we kind of veered a little bit off the, this topic, <laughs> but I think in terms of libraries in the wear a goddamn mask sort of vein, <laughs> it would be go back to just doing goddamn curbside service yeah. <laughs> it would be the equivalent there because I just don't think it's worth it. Like having people physically in the buildings and touching things, putting things back, like libraries are a very interactive space and that you can't really do that. It's not like going to the grocery store where you pick an item off the shelf theoretically and you don't put it back. Although I'm sure people do that a bunch. Um, Like the idea is that you're constantly touching computers and, you know, returning books that have been in your home and like things like that. I just... I think it's important that we keep our workers safe and we keep our communities safe and, and try not to try not to do something just because of the pressures, the political pressures, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. We have very two different states. <laughs> um, so moving on to a different topic, I thought this was interesting I want to read the whole thing because the first part is not really a question, but the second person who tweeted did have a question, but I thought that the context of this other person was interesting. So Claire WG at Claire and Books on Twitter um, said, as a neighborhood librarian, I am proud to support my union's community investment collections plan created in response to a new policy that will centralize ordering at BPL. Branch libraries aren't stored shelves for a larger system. We're all connected, yes, and we share resources, but we exist as neighborhood institutions and provide access and service to the people who live in those neighborhoods. So the sort of question was from this other library person was uh, Lori Davis at librarian underscore Lori on Twitter. Librarians, does anyone else feel like collection stats for 2020 are more like points on whose line it is anyway? Um, (laughs) So like, they don't mean anything. But kind of the conversation um, in more of the tweets from Claire were like, did they ever, like, are collection stats like always the best way of determining uh, collection development um, was also another part of the conversation in in her uh, thread. So I just thought that that was interesting. Um, And because I feel like I do rely pretty heavily on circulation stats, mostly as like a springboard for items that need to be you know retired from our collection because they haven't been checked out in so many years but I do also like to think that I come at it with a lens of like is this culturally important to the neighborhood in which my collection lives like for instance the International District Chinatown Library I was helping them weed and the only things that hadn't checked because they keep a very tight collection at that branch the only things that hadn't circulated in over two years were like uh, nonfiction about either that specific neighborhood or about like 
the communities that they serve. So like um, Chinese history or the like Japanese internment camp histories, like different things like that, where I was like, yeah, these books haven't checked out in two years, but they're like culturally important to this neighborhood and the history of this neighborhood. So I see why they're still on the shelf. And so I left them there. Um, so I was wondering, you know, if y'all do any weeding and like how you approach that and how you feel about centralized collection development for like a system. I'll jump in. Um, I've done, yeah, I do weeding now and I've, I've previously done it in other positions and um, I definitely agree with Claire and, and with you, Amanda, it's very important to consider the cultural relevance in the neighborhood. And I think also to an extent, perhaps the age interest and the collection itself. Um, so I know I've curated a couple of graphic novel collections, for instance, and with graphic novels, you can't always rely on circ stats because some people, those, those items people will sit with and read repeatedly in the library. And so they're getting use, they're getting heavy handling, but that doesn't necessarily reflect in your actual checkout numbers. And I've also had items that people may be embarrassed to actually check out uh, for whatever reason, be it they don't feel like it's a safe space at home or they're exploring a new kind of content, whatever the case may be again, that get heavy use inside the library, but may not necessarily have those circulation numbers. And so I definitely think that that is important to consider for your community and your whatever specific collection that you have. I was thinking about like the weeding part of it, because that's what I do. My system actually does have centralized ordering, which I think was what Claire was fighting against happening at her library. So I don't know, like, I feel like our collection, our centralized collection development crew actually does a pretty good job for the most part. And every year they take a survey from the librarians who work at the branch in terms of like what we see going on in our community so that they can order more relevant books for our community. Mm. Um, and also they, we have a spreadsheet where we add recommendations for purchase as well in addition to that so it's like it's centralized but in that one person is ordering everything but not in that one person is so disconnected from us and our opinions that they just kind of order a million James Patterson books and don't really <laughs> you know <laughs> determine what our community actually wants or needs so I don't know I'm kind of like on the fence with this one because like I would kind of want more control over my specific branch in terms of like the collection because I have worked at libraries where I did a lot of the ordering and there was something really powerful about being able to like talk to people on the reference desk and say, you know, what do you think we should buy and like actually make that come to life. But I feel like I still kind of have that power. It's just a little bit disconnected. So it, it takes longer and, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't always happen. <laughs> so it, it's, it is kind of like, I don't know. I'm sure there are advantages to centralized ordering. What does, um, what does your library do? Do they have centralized ordering for all the branches? Like one person who buys all the books? No, no. It used to be a bigger group. It just recently went down to less people. Like I used to do um, some ordering, but they're reorganizing some of the, I guess, job duties. Um, and, but it, that spread out different librarians. And I think there's still some, I don't know, Gabby, are there, do you know if there's any SLAs that are doing any ordering? A, I know of one, but I also know that they've taken it away from others. So mm -hmm. there's, yeah. And that also goes back to, I think the the question of do you need a master's degree <laughs> and I because I'm I don't know I personally I'm sort of against I'm not sort of against I am against centralized ordering just because I'm very passionate about collection development as a community connection tool 
like you're <laughs> for me again this is for me very personally uh, it's like you're telling me I'm going to go to college again to get a <laughs> master's degree and that I might not be able to do collection development because you've decided there is a chosen one <laughs> to do collection <laughs> development. I'm very against that. Yeah. Um, I've been very blessed to have the opportunity to do collection development as not a degree holder. And I've also had it taken away and I've spoken to other paraprofessionals who have had that and then have it taken away. And it's uh, very demoralizing um, as a paraprofessional. So I'm just going to throw that out there that is true and I don't think you need uh, personally I don't think you need a master's degree to do collection development I think work experience and really knowing the community like um what was her name Claire uh mentioned is really you getting to know the community yes um honestly I you know I have done collection development before and I, I and I, I enjoyed it I did but also my other job duties are so much that it was kind of for me a blessing where I was like yes please take this off mm -hmm. of my plate because I don't have the time for that to really focus on it so and I'm thinking if there are people who it's a strong suit of theirs and they're you know passionate about it definitely like if they haven't been trained on it train them on it you know and if they really know what the community is wanting and reading and looking for I think those are the people that should be ordering or at least being listened to by the group of people that's ordering. And I'm, I'm also against, I don't think there should just be one person doing all the ordering because that would seriously be their full-time job. And I'm like, you're not then working with the public really. Um, you are then having just to look and see, okay, what are the best sellers? What are in these, you know, journals, all of this stuff. And yeah, no, I think if you have to be working with the public, to see, you know, hey, what is it that they're wanting? Yeah, I don't know if that's a fight I would ever win at my institution because they're very passionate about their centralized ordering. <laughs> <laughs> um, Do they work with the public? No. Um, so, and by, I should I should say by centralized ordering, it's obviously it's not one person who's right. buying for the whole collection. <laughs> Yeah, and, and yeah. I think it depends on the size of the library. Like, you work for a library system that's very big. Yeah. Um, but we all came from a library that's one branch, and mm -hmm. there is now only one person. It used to be several different oh. people. Now it's only one person who's doing that, and they are no longer working with the public because yeah. this is a full-time job. Yeah, that's that's the situation. Is there's a, There's a team of people who are the collection librarians, and they don't work directly with the public, they, their full-time job is, like you said, trying to figure out what books to order. Um, I think the reason why it's done that way is perhaps just a, like, budgetary thing. You know, like, I, I don't see why you couldn't just give the branch librarians, like, a set amount of money and tell them to order, I guess, but I think it's, like, the idea that it's a system and all of the branches are connected and we have so much only so much money to go around and that it sort of fluctuates you know it's not like this branch will always get x amount of money it's like where is the need you know like yeah. i think it can be done in a way that makes sense and is actually uh beneficial and i think we approximate that at at my library um it, I do kind of miss having that direct hands-on because, you know, I was the youth services librarian of a single branch library, and I really loved having my little, like, kingdom of books that I, <laughs> you know, like, I could decide what we ordered, and obviously I took input from everybody who worked there, um, and, you know, would even have people send me, like, book lists of things, you know, from time to time of like what they thought I should order, um, especially for our Spanish language collection, because I don't speak Spanish, I'm not a native Spanish speaker. Um, and also there's like, ordering books in another language is extremely complicated, <laughs> because there's so many subcultures of each language that you can think you're ordering something and just realize, oh, 
you know, our community that's primarily Mexican is not really going to understand this book from Spain because there are certain cultural differences and they use different words for different things. And like just sort of realizing that when you're doing collection development is really complicated. So you definitely need someone who's a native speaker to help maintain the collection. Um, so that's kind of a tangent, but <laughs> it's like, I think it's important to have feedback from people, but how directly you get feedback, you know, like how many people are in control of actually pressing that order book button, mm -hmm. um, I think can vary. Um, definitely love that I have control over the weeding aspect and that I can recommend for purchase different items and like 98% of the time those items are sent like immediately to my branch. So um, I would say that it, I, I don't think it's a total evil to have centralized ordering, but I do understand the the stress of like each neighborhood is individual and their collection must be tailored to the individual neighborhood and people working directly with the public need to have say over what that collection is. I think is definitely a important and valid point. Do y'all do floating collections? <laughs> uh, Gabby, do you want to talk about that? Sure. So we used to could. <laughs> um, so we just recently unfloated <laughs> our collection. Well, some of our collections. <laughs> it's been a process. So yeah, so we used to do floating collections where uh, between our uh, four branches, now three, if something was checked out at one and returned to the other, it would just live at the other until it was checked out and returned again. And they, that's sort of a very basic idea of what floating is. And so we've now unfloated, which means shipping all items back to a home location. And I can't even imagine doing this in a bigger system than between mm. our four-ish branches. Yeah, that was the whole, uh, it's a whole thing. <laughs> it's a whole thing. That's a long you know, answer for you. Well, do you know why they wanted to float the collections or why they wanted to not float the collections? Was it, what was the reasoning? Um, I do not, I was not there when the decision to float the collections was made. Um, as for unfloating, no, I don't know that either. Um, <laughs> I think, <laughs> I, I think the reason that they, I, I wasn't there whenever they did float, like started floating. Um, they just recently are starting the unfloating process, like Gabby was saying. But I believe one of the big reasons is because one of our locations um, has a much higher circulation rate. Like there's more people checking out items and putting things on hold there. So everything was kind of just getting stuck was just staying there and they didn't have enough room for it because you know let's say you check something out at library a and it's coming from library b but if you return it back to to library a it's going to stay wherever it was returned that was how our floating collection was working until somebody else you know put it on hold and then they or they checked it out and returned it to one of the other libraries so i think that was one of the deciding factors um to just kind of like and make sure that each library was having you know enough books or, or not enough books but I guess just kind of making sure things were spread out more fairly I, I don't know if that's the I'm sure it's not the only reason um I wasn't part of those conversations about hey this is why we're really doing this I do know that is one of the reasons why though um so I can kind of explain what I understand to be the reason to float a collection and the downsides to floating a collection. Um, from, from what I understand, I hope this isn't misrepresenting anything, but I think the idea behind floating a collection is to provide more variety for the browser of a, the said collection. So say for instance, you have a very highly browsed collection like DVDs and your patrons at your location have watched every single DVD you own but you're a system, so you have other branches and they have other DVDs. Well, if you float, then those DVDs kind of float around to the other libraries. So you have more variety and you have more uh, collection available to be browsed. Um, 
the problem, as you said, is that hold savvy locations, usually more white affluent neighborhoods, tend to be the ones who place holds and all of those floating items go to that location. Exactly. So what, what a lot of libraries do that float collections, um, ours included, they do something called a rebalance. So this happens, I want to say once a week, maybe more often than that. Um, they run a report that lists all the items. So like if you have, every branch has like a capacity number. So if your branch has a capacity of 100 DVDs and today you have 115, the rebalance report says, go pick 15 random DVDs. Um, so if you have, you know, like 20 copies of, um, I don't know, like a Home Alone 2, you can go in and take 15 of those and send them to uh, the central library, which will then rebalance and send those out to another branch that doesn't have enough. Um, they were under the number that they needed. Yeah. So um, that is how they account for that particular issue. And I don't think that floating makes sense for every single collection necessarily, but I do understand the value of that, like for DVDs, for audiobooks, for graphic novels. Um, these things are highly browsed, um, high circulation items that people um, want popular titles in, I guess. Um, so the idea that there will be more variety and more selection because you're a system and you have all of these titles, you can sort of spread them around. But um, I do think that it's important to make sure that you have a way of either rebalancing or a way of having some sort of core collection that doesn't float, that is community focused. Like for instance, one of our branches has an LGBTQ collection, another one has like an African-American collection. And like, I don't think those should float items in, that, in those collections because they're in those neighborhoods where they're needed. So I kind of like, am again, like on the fence. <laughs> I'm like, I see how um, floating is bad, but I also see like how done well and thoughtfully can actually be good. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't think, I mean, I don't consider floating bad or good like you. Um, and that, well, there used to be a central branch for our library system, but there isn't anymore. So I'm wondering if that's also a deciding factor, but that was years before I worked there that they had closed the, the central location. Oh, that's um, so weird. Really? Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, there's no central library. There's just the three libraries and there are three library locations. Um, they're all part of the same library system, you know, but they're not necessarily branches because there's not a central, you know what I mean? So there's three mm -hmm. library locations of this one library. It's like the Trinity, depending on what you believe in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it's like that. <laughs> uh so um, yeah. <laughs> do you like that <laughs> I, I i really enjoy that yes I'm, <laughs> I'm torn between claiming my location as as god as omnipotent and omnipowerful omnipowerful wait there's the, a father the son and the holy ghost right yeah, the, yeah or or claiming our our location as the holy ghost because i think the Holy Ghost is the coolest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Jesus is important too. Like, look. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm not super religious. I really don't know how well this an analogy holds up, but you get what I'm saying. Um, I enjoy it. I'm amused. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're all different, but they're all the same somehow. Exactly. Exactly. Like I, that was the thing yeah. that I never understood about the Holy Trinity. It's like, oh god, they're, they're all the same, but they're different, but they're all the same. Well, and it depends on what you believe. There's like, wow, how did we? The things the okay. <laughs> rabbit, tra rabbit trailing. <laughs> yeah, there's like people. Who, there's like the people who believe. I don't know. I'm very confused about in general so i'm not going to talk on this because i will probably put foot in mouth a good because i don't understand it so trying to explain something that you do not understand just sounds like hogwash so i'm gonna shut up now <laughs> yeah um but yeah so back to the the floating unfloating thing though um i think it was just it wasn't maybe working as well i don't know i really don't know the reasoning 
Yeah, I think it's entirely possible that just like the manpower in which it takes to run it differently, like is was just not possible. Because I think it is it takes some work to do those rebalance reports and to do that. And it's not as easy as just um saying, oh, it'll naturally balance itself because people will place it on hold and it'll go back and forth. Um, because you discover things like that, like that there are places where people are better at placing holds on materials than others. Um, and it just doesn't always work. And there's also the factor of like some of our branches are itty bitty, teeny tiny, and their um, capacity for materials is very sparse. Yeah. So if you are doing floating without a careful eye for rebalance, then you could end up with, you know, 12 copies of Dogman, and that's all you have for your, which I mean, I'm sure would fly off the shelves because that is stupid popular still, yeah. but like you don't have the selection, like you don't have the variety of materials that you would want. So when you do those rebalance reports, you have to like almost place items on hold to be delivered to your branch. So make sure that they have uh, a variety. So it's kind of tricky. I can yeah. see why you would stop doing it because it's like, this is more work than I signed up for. Yeah. And now it's time for the Goodreads review. So this Goodreads review is um, in honor of Dr. Debbie Reese. It's for Little House on the Prairie by Laura Ingalls Wilder. And it's the one star review from user Caitlin Bates from October of 2020. Oh. So very recent review. Um, so Caitlin says, this book is just racist BS sandwiched between descriptions of furniture being built. <laughs> <laughs> I've never read it, so I'm going to take her word for it. <laughs> <laughs> Not I inaccurate. Just... 